clearly his injuries are still affecting him more than a year later, although I imagine trying to make a four-day cross-country escape trek with no food probably didn't do his recovery any good. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we've got Private Ellis Fithian of the 4th Battalion Cheshire Regiment. Now, this is a fairly early war one, so we're looking at the Dunkirk evacuation. He had been in the army since 1935, well, at least the Territorial Army, and he's in the Cheshire Regiment because he hailed from Bullock Street in Holm in Manchester. Now, the 4th Battalion... Basically, it was a divisional machine gun battalion that was attached to the general headquarters of the British Expeditionary Force. Now, we know, obviously, that in uh, May 1940, after that extended period of the Phony War, that the, the Germans started to push into the Netherlands and Belgium. And the 4th Battalion was actually uh, quite far east at the time, around the Maginot area. And the orders came through. The German army was in the Ardennes, around about the 14th. And that effectively the, the commander of the British Expeditionary Force, which was General Lord Gort, I think, realised that the, the British Expeditionary Force was not going to stop the weight of the, the, the Germans coming through. And that really they needed to pull back quite rapidly westwards, which then ultimately led to, on the 25th of May, Gort saying actually get right back to the coast. So effectively, the 4th Battalion were being drawn back from near Brussels and they were working their way back into the sort of Somme region, up into Ypres, and then their way back into Dunkirk. But this particular capture actually happens relatively early on. So he was captured on the 19th of May, which is before the order is given to recover back into France, and he was captured near Tournai. Now, I managed to find in the, the movements for the 4th Battalion that actually they zigzagged around quite a lot. But Tournai was fairly early on from their retreat back from Brussels. No real information about the capture, but some people will obviously know a little bit about the 4th Battalion because as part of this withdrawal and a few days after Ellis was captured, there was actually the massacre at Wormholt where... They put 81 prisoners in a barn and murdered them as part of the, the retreat from there. So that's how the 4th Division is mostly known. But I had very little information from Private Ellis about his capture. And in fact, I think his, his actual statement is fairly to the point, isn't it? Mm. So Private Ellis, he says, um, I was captured with my platoon near Tournai on the 19th of May 1940, having been wounded by a hand grenade on the right shoulder. I was taken by truck to an improvised hospital in Louvain on the 20th of May and was there for two or three days before being sent on to Maastricht. I was in hospital in the Jesuit monastery in Maastricht from the end of May to the middle of September and I was twice operated on. Now, a wound to the shoulder that ends up having you in hospital for four months, mm. I would say is a fairly significant wound. Particularly if you're having two operations on it. Indeed. So one could argue that this was probably fairly serious fighting that he got involved in. Mm -hmm. It's just a real shame I couldn't find the exact details of the skirmish that happened near Tournai on the 19th. Everything tends to focus quite rightly on the massacre that occurred a few days later. But sadly, I have to draw blank on what, what exactly wounded him. So having been in hospital for four months, he actually jumps around a number of different prisoner of war camps over the coming years and months. 
he actually moves around 10 different prisoner war camps. That's quite significant. Between September 1940 and March 1943. So, what, two and a half years? Uh, is most of that weighted early on? Because, of course, they, they struggled with an ounce of prisoners that they were getting in from the collapse of the British Expeditionary Force. Yeah, a fair amount of them. I mean, he, he'd been through the first three by Christmas 1940. Okay. So roughly one a month at that, at that point. So having come out of hospital, he was then sent to what he describes as a hospital reception camp at Duren in northern Germany. And he was only there for a couple of days before being sent to Stalag 6A, which was in roughly the same area. And again, he just spent a couple of weeks there before again being sent on to a front Stalag, front Stalag 5D near Strasbourg, which he was then to spend a couple of months until Christmas. So we've basically got to Christmas 1940, the end of that year, and he spent most of it in hospital and then jumping around a couple of camps. However, he's clearly starting to recover because in early 1941, he's then sent to an Arbeitskommando now. That, of course, means a work commando. And so he's clearly well enough to start his duties. And he's sent to he's sent to Stalag 5B at Vlingen, which is near Rottweil in the Black Forest. Now, I assume that is the source location of the famous dog. I, I can imagine so. And yeah. Hopefully, Black Forest Gatos around nearby. Probably not at the time of the war. No, probably not a, a lot of Black Forest Gatos no. kicking I, around I would in happily, early 1941. I would happily go and find out down there, though I love Black Forest Gatto. Yes. And over the, the coming sort of weeks and months, you know, he, he kind of says, a couple of months here, a couple of months there. He stays. He goes to the main camp at Valingen, so he's clearly been at a satellite camp, goes back to the main camp then at Schilberg until March 1941, and then back to another Arbeitskommando. By this point, he's sent to Poland. And while there, he was working on a, a road-making party. So that's the uh, work duty that he'd been sent on in Poland. So we're now in March 1941. Okay. So nearly a year after he was first captured. And it was at this point that he decides to make his first escape attempt. Okay. So, you know, usually when we see people who are to make repeated escape attempts, as we do see with Fithian here, you tend to see them making their first escape attempt fairly quickly. But of course, he's been in hospital, received a serious substantial wound to his shoulder... As you say, significant enough that he's in for four months and having to receive two operations, which in and of themselves, each operation would require a recovery period Absolutely. in their own right. So it takes him until June 1941, so more than a year after his capture in May 1940, for him to make his first escape attempt. And he states that, About June 1941, I escaped from the working party by crawling into a field. I was alone and had no food or plan of action and was caught near Posen after about four days by a German soldier. I was then sent back to Gilgenhof, which was the main camp to which the Arbeitskommando was attached. Yeah. And he does state that, you know, he had no plan, he had no food, etc. And although he was only out for four days, I think that actually kind of shows, because having returned to Gilgenhof, he actually states shortly afterwards, I went sick from the effects of my wound and did not again go out with a working party until after my recovery, when he was then assigned to be a kitchen orderly. So clearly his injuries are still affecting him mm. more than a year later, although I imagine trying to make a four-day cross-country escape trek with no food and no particular plan of action probably didn't do his recovery any good. I can imagine that's right, yeah. So after that first escape attempt, he was then, in August 1941, sent to Stalag 21C at Wolstein, and he was there until November, and then again sent to another camp attached to that, which was located in Graz, and he was there 
from November 1941 until early 42. He says January or Feb, so he's not entirely sure exactly. And then again, he's sent on to Fort Groman, which was an Arbeitz commando attached to Stalag 21D, which is Poznan or Poznan, as it's now known, yep. in Poland. And his particular Arbeitz commando was located about seven kilometers from Fort Drach, which was the main Stalag that he was attached to. So, having now found himself in Fort Groman, he was to make his second and final escape. Okay. So he actually goes into quite a lot of detail about the preparations he goes into on this one, given that his first escape... Was completely unplanned. Yeah, completely unplanned and clearly... Opportunist. Opportunistic and very unprepared, (laughs) by by definition. I, I get the feeling he'd learned his lesson a little bit, because... He states that at the end of 1942, a Sergeant Butterworth of the Royal Artillery, who was in charge of one of the parties working from Fort Groman, began planning to escape and took Fithian into his confidence early in January 1943. Now, Butterworth had clearly been making his own preparations because he had a small motoring map of Eastern Europe, which he got Fithian to enlarge. And he also had for himself some civilian clothes, which he got from some Polish friends, trousers, jacket and a trilby hat and suggested that Fithian also get some civilian clothes so that he could accompany him. So, taking him at his word, he went out and got a pair of trousers from a pole in exchange for cigarettes and chocolate. So again, we're seeing the advantage of the Red Cross here. Mm. And he stole an old jacket from the concert room where the props for the amateur theatre was kept. So Fantastic. A combination of theft and bribery is rampant once again. Excellent. <laughs> we, we need this in an escape regularly. Yeah, we definitely do. So by this point, Butterworth and Fithian had collected chocolate from their Red Cross parcels and had managed to obtain from a medical orderly Horlick's tablets and water purifying tablets. So they're building up their food provisions here, which is, of course, hugely important. Very much so. Particularly if you've got an injury that is clearly causing you problems and a four-day trek was enough to reopen the wound or at least do damage to the wound. So having food and being able to maintain your energy supplies is crucially important for both an escape and for a major injury. So every morning while they were preparing, Sergeant Butterworth would take out their supplies and hide them somewhere outside the camp because, of course, they're going out for work detail, so he's taking them out. And Fithian also got a, a tailor who was in the camp, a British tailor, to make him a bag out of an old pair of canvas trousers while Sergeant Butterworth was planning to carry his own food in a sugar bag, which is what a lot of Polish workers were doing. So they fixed upon the 31st of March 1943 as the date of their escape. Now, Butterworth was planning that they would go southwest in the hope of reaching France, but they had received a certain amount of advice from a man in the camp who had previously escaped and got as far as Leipzig, and he had told them that they should walk by night and lie up by day and try to jump trains going west. Now, I find that interesting because it's just, it's intriguing to see how escapers learn from those who have escaped previously and passed on some advice not all of it great but it's just interesting to see the ones that matter enough for them to end up in the escape report absolutely what's the advice they've received and why is it important enough to still be pertinent here and so clearly he considered this important bit of advice and therefore he is learning again and again from the previous escapes that had taken place and previous experience of escapes which is crucially important in building up your knowledge and expertise in the in the area so to the escape itself okay so on the morning of the 31st of march fithian was to take the place of a private douglas lum who was a good friend of his on a working party butterworth was to go out with his own working party and they were to meet at a railway crossing near good stations at st lazarus on the western outskirts of posen at 0900 hours in the morning 
It's very to the point. It yes. yes. Very specific. Planned. Very planned, yes. And indeed, <laughs> in stark contrast to previous efforts, they are clearly making a lot of effort to actually work out what it is they want to do. And also the detail of this is quite important because of what happens next. Okay. So on that morning, he left the camp in Private Lum's place, wearing his civilian clothes underneath his uniform. So the working party he was on was digging drains in one of the main streets of Posen. And shortly after they began work, he got permission from the guard to go to the nearby lavatory, which was close to an adjacent cemetery. So while in the lavatory, he took off his uniform and walked out when the guard's back was turned. And of course, he's in a completely different outfit, so we wouldn't necessarily be expected to see him and recognise him. So he's, he's got a certain degree of disguise here. He then joined a crowd of Polish workers who were making their way towards this railway crossing at St Lazarus. And he arrived at this railway crossing at 08.45 hours. However, Sergeant Butterworth failed to appear at 0900 hours. Oh dear. It's exactly, tardy. And though he waited until 2 o'clock in the afternoon... Oh my word. Yeah, he waited five hours. Walking up and down the railway line, he saw no sign of Butterworth anywhere. So while he was waiting, a Polish woman at a house near the railway crossing spoke to him as he was sheltering in her doorway. Now, initially she spoke to him in Polish, which he didn't understand, and then in German, which he spoke a little bit of. So upon learning that he was a British prisoner of war, she took him in, and though she was obviously very frightened, gave him a Polish cap. So building up a little bit more of a, a disguise here, and which, again, is important, assimilating into the local population, looking like you're from there, really matters, as we know. Absolutely. About 3.30 in the afternoon, he went to the neighbourhood of a tram stop from which he knew Butterworth Party would be returning to the camp okay. around about that time. And when the party returned, Butterworth was not with them. So Butterworth has clearly made his escape. Just not made the rendezvous. Exactly. Interesting. Yes, indeed. And he actually states that another sergeant was in charge and the German guard seemed very agitated. So from this, he concluded that Butterworth had escaped. Right. But as you say, not made the rendezvous, which is suboptimal <laughs> if you're planning to make a joint escape. You could say that, yes. yes. It's not just suboptimal that they hadn't made the rendezvous, but of course Sergeant Butterworth had all of the food and the map. That's particularly poor planning, yes. bearing in mind how they planned it. Yes. You thought you'd split your reserves across both parties. Yes, exactly. Although he does state that Butterworth had been the one taking it out and hiding it. And so, by definition, he was the one that knew where it was hidden, and therefore it would have largely been on him to gather it, collate it, and make the rendezvous. Absolutely. So, although Butterworth had all the food and maps, he decided to go it alone regardless, which I think is quite a bold decision to take, actually. With, with no supplies, yeah. Yeah. And so he started walking due west along the railway line, and at dusk, a goods train overtook him on a gradient. Which, actually, we have kind of seen before that when the trains were going uphill, of course, they slowed down. And so it made it much easier to jump a jump goods a train. train. Yeah. So as the train slowed down, he did jump on the goods train and he looked at the destination label in the wire board on the side of the wagon. But because it was such poor light, he could only make out the word Lebensmittel, which is food supplies. The wagon itself was closed and sealed, but he managed to get into one of the open brake vans of which there was one at each end of the wagon. So, although he's surrounded by food, he actually can't get access to the food. Must have been very tempting and really annoying for him, actually. Yes, frustrating. Yes. Yeah. Now, he does state that he's not sure of the route that the train then followed, or even whether the wagon that he was in remained with the same train throughout the journey, because 
course, it wasn't uncommon for these trains to be put into sidings and hitched onto different trains and all this sort of stuff. He was just stuck inside the van, so he had absolutely no idea what was going on outside. However, he does believe that he passed through Frankfurt and then later still Saarbrücken. And he says that the train travelled fairly fast, but it stopped at least once a day for shunting. He's covering the miles, though. He is, yeah, which is, as we know, is crucially important. Particularly as he hung around for so long, he really ran the risk of being rediscovered at the end of the working day by still being in the area at, what, three o'clock in the afternoon. So Mm. he really needed to cover the miles, as you say, and the train is by far the best way. And better yet, he'll have no paper checks because... It's a freight train. Yeah. So for the journey itself, he, he states, I spent most of my time lying on the two spring seats which let down from the wall of the wagon. That actually sounds quite comfortable. Particularly as if you're just stuck in a wagon, usually just you have nothing to sit on or all too often it's cold and it's uncomfortable and all, yeah. all this sort of stuff. So he's, he's locked out in a way here because he's got two spring seats that just fold down. When these seats were down and I was lying on them, the doors of the brake van could not be opened. Several times when this train stopped, the doors were tried, but by crouching down, I avoided detection. The Germans who tried the doors did not attempt to find out why they would not open, but merely went away cursing. As the windows of the brake van were very dirty, it would have been difficult for me to be seen from the outside. So he's managed to kind of remain hidden and fairly comfortable while covering significant distances, because if he's not got all the way to Saarbrücken at least, he's gone a fair distance from Poland. Yeah. And he travelled in this manner for four days. During that time, never leaving the brake van, but also he didn't have any food or water for four days. Yeah. We've seen it before, haven't we, with... Dean Drummond. Dean Drummond and also Stanford Tuck, wasn't it? Mm. They hid in the hay bales for several days. Yeah, going without food and water for that period of time is trying. Mm -hmm. So during that time, he states that each evening I knew from the position of the setting sun that I was still heading west until after Zarbrücken when the train turned south. And he didn't get off the train until he had actually reached France on the evening of the 4th or 5th of April. He had no idea where he was. It was only from the posters on the walls that he knew he was either in France or Belgium. The train he was in shunted about for almost an hour on various sets of lines and eventually reached a line that was adjoining a path. So he jumped out and got onto the path and walked towards the nearby town. So he's managed to reach France by train within four or five days, covering 960 kilometres in that time, or 600 miles. That's really good going. It's rapid going. I mean, any manhunt that is going on has not, certainly not reached France by this point. No. So he's well out of immediate reach of the security forces around Posen in Poland. So having arrived in France, he states that several people looked at him suspiciously, but no one stopped him. He then spoke to two people in the doorway telling them that he was British. And while they gave him bread and told him to hide at once, none of them actually offered to help him do so. But in fairness, he's actually got some bread after four days without food. So he's at least getting some fairly crucial sustenance and bread in particular, carbohydrates, bit of energy that would make a significant difference, I'm sure. Having been told that he had to go hide, he made a rapid exit and having reached the river, he knocked at the door of a house. An old woman called him inside and gave him bread, sugar and water, which was all she had in the house. But he did manage to also get a, a wash and a clean there and stayed for about half an hour. So at least he's now had the chance to freshen himself up a bit, get a bit of food. Sugar, I'm sure. Would be helpful. Yeah, yes. I'm sure that was very welcome. And also rare at the time. So this is quite a significant bit of generosity from this old, old woman in France. So having left this helper, he then walked down the road and noticed a signpost that was pointing towards Paris. And so he took the road indicated by the sign and walked all night, arriving in the early morning of the following day in Toul. 
So having arrived in Toul, he tried several houses telling the people that he was British and asking for bread. Finally, he went to a house where he was taken in, given food and allowed to wash. And eventually the sister of the hostess came to fetch him with a man who spoke English, adding that he had previously helped other escapers. Now, we've now reached 1943, so it's not beyond the realms of possibility by any stretch of imagination that he genuinely was a regular helper part of the resistance. We know that these escape lines very much existed by this point to help people precisely like Fithian. Absolutely. So to some extent, he has lucked out. I know when we spoke to Helen Fry, one of the questions I asked her was, how did you get yourself introduced to these escape lines? Her her comment was, you just had to get lucky, effectively. Hmm. But Fithian very much has here in that he's managed to introduce himself to not just people who are willing to help, but people who are willing to help and have the connections that he needs to get him onto one of these escape lines. Yeah. So the man in question brought him bread, sausage, sugar, coupons and 100 francs. So he's managed to get himself food money and a resistance contact. And he also gave him a small map on which he marked in pencil the route to Paris where he said he'd find help with a de Gaullist organisation. So after a couple of hours he started walking again and followed the route that had been marked for him, eventually arriving in Sud saint croix And he was so eager to reach Paris that he had walked by both day and night, sleeping for only short periods in barns, under trucks, or anywhere that offered at least a modicum of shelter. He also managed to get food at farmhouses along the way, and covered around about 20 kilometres a day, keeping to the main road at all times, which is fairly high risk. Yeah, very much so. But he also says that there was very little traffic, which actually doesn't surprise me at all for this time of the war. You know, by 1943, petrol was not common, certainly not for civilians. You know, Correct, yeah. by this stage, you hear about it being restricted to people like doctors and butchers, and even then they were having to use coal fires to make the engine run. And I'm not surprised there's not a lot of traffic at this time. Mm-hmm. And he says what traffic there was was primarily German military trucks and cars. So yeah, rationing on civilian transport would have very much restricted any other form of traffic. But even so, what traffic there was was German military and German cars. So as I say, still very high risk, Hmm. particularly if you're travelling during the day. If you're travelling at night, you've at least got a little bit of cover. You can see the lights, headlamps coming towards you and hide behind a bush or something like that. If you're travelling during the day, you've got much greater risk of being spotted. Now, even even by this stage, he was still wearing the clothes in which he had escaped, other than he had managed to procure for himself in Toul a beret and had therefore buried his Polish cap. But again, going back, the whole point of the Polish cap in the first place was being able to assimilate into the Polish locality, into the local community and the people around him. Once you're in France, that's not much help. No, we obviously don't want to stereotype here, but... Yes, a beret. <laughs> yes, I, 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 all he needs is a string of onions and a stripy shirt, and he's sorted. <laughs> so whenever he did have to pass Germans, he states that he just brazened it out and was never stopped in the six or seven days that he was walking for. So having eventually reached Souda saint croix which is about halfway between Toul and Paris, he states that I found help here and was put in touch with an organisation which arranged the rest of my journey. Now this is... A fairly common phrase that appears in a lot of these escape reports, effectively to signify, I met an escape line. Yeah. It is probably the comet line, based upon the location mm-hmm. and the direction of travel that he went on following, but I can't be 100% certain on that one. We, of course, have discussed the comet line we have, extensively. Yes. Uh, it's the one that was set up by Andrea de Jong, ran down into Spain, ran all the way up to Belgium as well. So, yes, based upon geographical location, I think it was probably the comet line, but I can't be 100% certain. Okay. 
So having met with this escape line, he skirts over a little bit how he made his way to Spain, but he then says that having arrived in Spain alongside two other escapers and a number of Frenchmen in Bielsa, he was arrested on the 2nd of July. So he states, while walking along the main road, we were arrested by a civil guard who was wearing, in place of the usual uniform, a civilian overcoat and a flat military cap. He arrested us and took us to the civil guard outpost where we were searched. And one of the other escapers, a Sergeant Alderdice, acting on advice he had received in France, suggested that they declare themselves Americans, which they did. Now, as a quick side note, Bielsa is actually nearly a thousand kilometres away from Suda saint croix So, good guy. This escape line really has got him shifting. Yeah. You know, that is a big distance to cover. And having got themselves into Spain, it's not unknown for them to be arrested. We have heard of this before. We have. So this is far from the first time or only time that this occurred, but still somewhat unhelpful. So having declared themselves Americans, he states this did not save us from imprisonment, which I'm not astounded by. Not least because 1943, the Americans were active belligerents, so it wouldn't make the blindest bit of difference. Perhaps when they were neutral in... 1941. Yeah. And earlier. It might have made a difference, but by mid-1943, I'm a bit sceptical that declaring yourself an American was going to make a huge amount of difference here. Nonetheless, after two or three weeks in prison at Barbastro, he was then sent to Zaragoza for a couple of days and then to Miranda concentration camp, which is one that we hear of quite regularly Regularly, and has an appalling reputation. He spent about three weeks in Miranda and was released on the 16th of August and taken to Madrid, after which he was then sent to Gibraltar. And he left Gibraltar at the end of August, arriving back in the UK on the 9th of September, having sailed to Gurik, which of course is on the Firth of Clyde. So he arrived back in the UK five months after escaping from Posen and three years and four months after his initial capture. Pretty good going. Yeah, not bad. Pretty good going. And so, of course, we don't know what happened to Butterworth. He just has disappeared into the... Not that I'm aware of, no. Seemingly. So, and sadly, as we can often report with uh, very junior ranks, and obviously he was a private, we don't really have much other information on him. I did find that his son wrote up a really good version of this report on a little website. And of note, I did see that his grandson actually tried to replicate his escape Mm -hmm. from the camp. Not in its entirety. I think they were going to use a bit more buses and trains than... It's about 2,000 kilometres. I don't blame him for that one. Well, he was only a a cup scout at the time, so so he was quite young when he went to this. I think it was about 10 years ago. Unfortunately, there wasn't a follow-up article to actually say whether he completed it or not, but there was certainly an intention for Mm -hmm. a family member to replicate this particular escape. But sadly, this particular man disappears, as we've seen with so many junior ranks from the moment that he gets back you know obviously war was still continuing mm-hmm. but i couldn't find anything in any further records of him rejoining a unit uh, or what he wanted to do so if anyone out there does know some more we would love to hear in fact i'd love to hear if his grandson actually did manage to repeat the journey and what he learned from it because i think that's one of the best ways to to relive some of this history Yes, absolutely, and presumably you didn't find anything on the Commonwealth War Grave, so I think... No, no, there's no record of him passing away. So we, he presumably survived the war, and by the signs of it, went on to have a family and children and grandchildren, and he yeah. states on his escape report that he was a bricklayer pre-war. So he might have gone back to his trade, but of course we don't know his age yeah. I don't know when he passed away. I couldn't find an obituary anywhere, even if he returned to his Manchester roots. Which is interesting because Ellis Fithian isn't a common name. It's not a common name, but nothing for him. Well, if anyone does know anything, please do get in touch. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching 
at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.